you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. As we speak about some of the uh, assumptions that are made about architects and the sector outside of London, I'm joined by Grace Choi, Sue Ems and Elena Marco. And if I could start by asking you, could you briefly tell us about yourself, where you're based and what drew you to that part of the UK? If I can start with you, Sue. So uh, tell us a bit about yourself, where you're based and what drew you to that part of the UK? Uh, hi, Marsha, and good morning, everybody. And um, uh, thank you for being part of inviting me to be part of this panel. It's great um, to be part of the conversation. So I'm Sue Ems. I suppose if I describe me professionally, I'm an architect director at BDP, um, and I have responsibility for our north regions. I'm based in Manchester. I'm a northerner. I'm born and bred. I was educated in the north as well. Um, and I lead our northern studios, which is Manchester, Sheffield, Birmingham, Liverpool and Leeds. Um, I guess um, I was drawn here. I was born here. I've had a, a small time, a number of years in London after I graduated, um, but I came back to my roots. Uh, I was drawn, I guess, to the north because I'm passionate about the culture, the people, um, and making a difference in places that I live, working with the communities uh, I live within. So I guess that's what drew me back to, to Manchester um, to be part of, I guess, the northern powerhouse. Uh, speaking of Northern Powerhouse, Grace, uh, could you um, tell us a bit about yourself, where you're based and what drew you to that part of the UK? Sure. Yep. So hi, everyone. Um, I'm Grace Choi um, and I am of South Korean descent and I run a small value-led practice called <clears throat> Grace Choi Architecture in the Northeast, so Newcastle based. Um, I also lead the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Group for the RIBA in the Northeast, which is called Change the Record. Um, and we do a lot of sort of conversational interaction um, on Zoom via something that we call the Jedi Talks, just equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, I accidentally ended up in the Northeast, to be honest, um, and I've made it my home since 2013. Um, before then, I um, worked in London, Glasgow, and I'm actually a mank at heart. So Sue, um, you know, I sort of, my heart is very much also in Manchester. I'm a Northern lass by attitude and accent, as you might tell. Um, but yeah, life, family, work um, led me to the Northeast. And I can, can genuinely say that it has been the, the best place for me to land. It's been so welcoming, actually really inclusive, and is a brilliant place to practice architecture. Thank you. And Elena, the same to you, a bit about yourself, where you're based and what drew you to that part of the UK? As you will see from my accent, I am not from the UK. I'm a Spaniard that came to the UK 21 years ago 
and actually was given a fantastic opportunity to work with Field and Clare Bradley Studios. Peter Clegg could not understand what I was talking about because I could not speak kind of very well English, but he still kind of um, gave me one of the most incredible opportunities and allowed me to stay in the UK. And then what happened, all these northern northerners like Grace and Sue made you stay because I got end up kind of having half married to a Yorkshire man, but my accent has not changed. And I'm currently um, the head of department for architecture and the field environment, kind of all the professions of the construction industry at the University of the West of England. Thank you so much. Now, uh, London centricity. Uh, it's something I've repeatedly heard about the profession since I began in it. And, and geographical diversity, clearly something that needs to be addressed. But in your opinion, um, if I can start with you, Sue, is, you know, why is London centricity a concern? Okay, thank you. I mean, uh, London is a global city, isn't it? It's our financial heart. It um, has the best, some of the best universities and the best research in architecture. I think one in four architects practice in London. So um, the profession is very London centric. Um, but I think the perception of it is stronger than maybe about the demographic. Um, a lot of activity has focused around London. Um, I think obviously the RIBA headquarters in London and many practice headquarters are also in London. Um, albeit BDP's headquarters in, is in Manchester, I have to say. Um, so there is definitely a trend. Um, I remember when I was graduated, um, there was this mass migration to London, to the bright lights of London, um, because the opportunities were greater, I think. Um, there was obviously a lot of elite, very good design-led practices, and um, people just felt that they wanted to get a part of that, and that was really um, critical to their career progression. Um, I think the trend is slightly changing though, and I think that's quite important to recognise. Um, why is it a problem? I think it's a problem because a lot of um, a lot of the issues about being London-centric means that actually do we represent the societies and the communities that we design for? And I'm not suggesting London isn't diverse because it is very diverse, but as architects, we have to work nationally and globally. And it's really important, therefore, that we are seen as a profession that is embedded into our cities and our communities that we work within. And um, that, geo that, that inequality from a geographic point of view is evened out. And I think, uh, and I probably you've probably discussed this in the education sector, but obviously the affordability around the profession and the cost of living in London, I think is definitely changing people's perceptions. We're seeing graduates now who are concerned about student debt, who want to live in more affordable cities where opportunities are as good, um, but they can repay back the cost of um, education for five years. So we are seeing a trend, and I think that opens up huge doors around social mobility um, and diversifying the profession in all regions, not just London. Grace, I saw you nodding away there with, with some of what um, Sue was saying. Um, is from your perspective, um, is is there enough sort of kudos, if you like, for want of a better word, given to those practices and and the what happens outside of London? No, absolutely not. I think um, there are some brilliant practices, individuals, and. Um, much diversity, you know, found outside of London. 
And um, I mean, I think the first thing I would challenge is um, our language that we've even used to describe this, you know, being outside London is exclusive in itself um, because it makes us sound secondary and less important and not part of the hub. And actually there are leading practices, leading individuals, leading initiatives, radicals, brilliant experimental work coming from very different places that have to be specific to the region that are a result of those communities and are um, diverse places to sort of live and work with. And, and you know, we, we need to celebrate that a lot more. Um, I mean, if we take the Northeast as a, an example to start with, if we actually look at the social demographic in terms of the makeup of um, society, outside of architecture, it does in terms of diversity, you know, in terms of data come across as quite poor. I think the the sort of percentage of white British people in the Northeast is actually about 94%. So it's extremely high, which is a challenging starting point. Um, and, you know, we know architecture has a significant issue when it comes to sort of, um, you know, diversity of sort of different ethnicities, especially in the Northeast. Um, so, so the more we champion London, the more we champion people moving away from our regions to want to go towards um, London as hubs, we, we um, sort of sacrifice something in the regions because that's becoming the attraction when actually there's brilliant stuff happening out here, um, you know, including our sort of Jedi talks and the stuff we're doing regionally um, out here in the Northeast. Um, there are all sorts of sort of agencies and initiatives um, that are brilliant. And I think especially now that we have this ability to, you know, to communicate digitally and online, and we need to let um, diversity be led from places other than where we think is you know, London, really. Elena, you know, you're leading a, a, a department in... Uh, place outside of, of London, which is Bath, Bristol area. Um, can you describe what your experience is of, you know, that sense of, of leading an architecture school outside? Because oh, London does have this pull. Uh, when I looked at the statistics of the, the where the money's coming from in the profession, it's all um, London based. And so, you know, a lot of the architecture schools and some of the, again, kudos, a bit of snobbery, if you like, about London architecture schools. You know, how do you cope and react to some of that? Uh, it's not about coping. I think it's just about being. Can you hear me properly? Yeah. Yeah, it's not about coping. It's about just being confident on what you do. So, you know, some people tell me the best things are in London. Are they really? And I, I just kind of, I don't want to be like them. If some of the behaviors I see in some of the schools of architecture in London, I'm actually not interested. And I don't champion that in my school. And I, I have got now a staff that chooses to be with us instead of wanting to be in London, because we, we are doing something different. Our students come all across the UK and outside London, and it is about having the diversity and the culture of many countries in what you provide that gives them a richness to choose you, not to just decide London or not London. 
I will tell you, if I was a, a student trying to choose for a London school, there is a lot of schools in London I will never choose. If I can come by, start by coming back to you, Sue, about, you know, the, the economics of the profession, if you like, and procurement and so on. It seems like all the big all the big practices, all the all the big um, projects, if you like, are London-based. So how do we push that out into the rest of the country so there can be more equity and equality in how the rest of the country gets involved in these things? Okay. Um, you're, I think you're quite right. I mean, we, we have six UK studios. Our biggest studio is London. And as a northerner sort of looking in at their opportunities, I get very jealous. They're big. They've got big scale you know, ambitious design aspirations, um, great projects, you know, large fees as well. Um, you know, and I think in the north, projects are a lot more scarce. And I think also maybe they're a little bit harder to win. Um, we do have London practices, obviously, uh, winning work in the north as well. Um, I guess as a result, maybe our approach to winning work in the north is a little bit more entrepreneurial. We have to be a bit more agile. We have to be a bit more efficient around how we deliver projects, et cetera. So, and those are skills I think are, are, are very critical to our profession anyway. Um, how do we change that? So I, I think um, obviously devolution and is really critical. I think if you just look at the city of Manchester um, under Sir Howard's leadership and Andy Burnham, you know, Manchester has thrived because of devolution where we have controlled where we spend the local money. And we put it into those projects um, that matter to our communities. And I so I think with greater devolution, we'll see a lot more control about economics. Um, I think it's really important that those big projects, I mean, obviously we saw the announcement last week on the infrastructure projects, HS2, HS3, um, and the impact that has had on the North. Um, but I think it's really important that large, especially government-led and um, public procured projects make sure that they benefit not just London, but the, the rest of um, the UK. Uh, on some of our large scale jobs, we work very collaboratively across our studios to make sure that we can spread the love. Um, the pipeline of work from London is probably about 25% of some of our Northern studios workload. And I think that's really important that uh, big infrastructure, public projects, that actually um, they benefit the rest of the country and the spend um, doesn't just stay within London. Um, I think um, I, I probably sort of reached, a, reached that sort of conclusion. And, and um, as, as I say, I, I think the opportunities in the North are, are slightly less and we have to be a bit more entrepreneurial and agile about our approach to work winning in the North. Um, procurement and, and clients as well, is there something that we should be encouraging um, our clients to think about when it comes to, you know, who are they turning to when it comes to, you know, the, the spend and, and, and who they're choosing as their architects, um, Grace? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I would I'd just take a, a backward step, really, to the question initially that you raised you know, in terms of economics, where are the opportunities outside of London? Because I think um, that that statement in itself um, leads us making decisions based on financial value. Um, and I would probably, um, you know, we do a lot of work in the community um, in our practice. And um, it's often the challenge that economics 
um, you know, a capitalist mindset, profit, growth, bigger, better, um, can result in having an expense on the people, on community. Um, there's a human cost to being led um, in in a singular focused way. So it's a, it's for me, it's really. And we've lost grace there. Finding that balance um, in, in people first, which is the heart of inclusion, isn't it? Um, and it's it's putting a spin on a statement of growth and opportunity to actually put those communities and people first in that conversation. Um, you know, as a smaller practice, we're we're more agile to sort of um, to to bring these questions up with our with our clients and with the, the people we work with. Um, so just, you know, as an example, you know, we work with the Bangladeshi community in West Newcastle. Um, and, you know, my bigger question was, where are all the architects who are present, who are, who have that proximity, who, who these communities can work with? Um, just not there. Um, you know, we, we work with sort of communities in North Shields, which is a really place of social deprivation. And I think, you know, if you're led by economics, you're not going to go to those places because they're really hard, economically frustrating. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, there's a whole different dynamic that I think we have to fundamentally question our value system and make it make that a positive spin come out of this so that the people are leading the economics and the heart of inclusion is leading a better um, way that we're designing with communities. Uh, Elena, I see you had a bit of a wry smile as you're listening to, uh, to to Grace there. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on some things that Sue and Grace are saying? So for me, I will put it in the context of what Grace and Sue are saying from the point of view of the what a school of architecture and build environment can do. For me, it's about, you know, educating the ethically driven, diverse leaders of tomorrow that have got a different mindset that is not economic, values over things above that. You know, yes, the economics need to work in the background, but they are not the commercial drive. And this is one of the things I significantly have made a massive change in my department over the last six years when we had curriculum, but was really focused about commercial focus. And I say, actually, it's not that. You are educating people to change the world and have the principles, the ethics and the values that will make sure that that happens. And I hope I'm kind of providing that to the profession. That is my aim, because I, th I think if I can put a little grain, that will help Grace and Sue in everything that they do. You go for it, Eleanor. That's great. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> No, well, certainly, you know, that, that, but, but more than that, I suppose, though, um, let's, you know, Elena, that you've got these um, students going through architectural practice. One of the things we were just talking about was the cost of architectural education. And are these students coming out into practice thinking about where is the next pound going to come from? Because I've got 90 grand's worth of debt. And so I have to push up my fees. I have to look at where the profit is here for me. Isn't that, you know, fundamentally a problem? Uh... I think you have to look it in the context of what, where do you want to go next? Education costs not just to architects, costs to everyone and how has it been established in this country? I cannot, well, I can influence government, if that makes any sense, 
but the complexities of the the way the fees structure are happening in this country is just not kind of saying I start paying this amount of money and then I come out at the end kind of with that debt. It's much more complex than that because there they are different opportunities and you go and see, you know, people that doesn't pay part one graduates or people that doesn't, there are other elements that are contributing Uh, we've got a pause on uh, on Elena as well. I mean, see, you also work in education and might have a view on that. Yeah, um, I'm a visiting practice professor at Sheffield and also been an external examiner at Manchester School of Architecture for the past five years. And I think Elena's right. Um, money doesn't drive every um, student. Oh, about the... Uh... Yes, yeah, so, sorry. Um so I think students are very ethical. They're quite socially motivated. Um, their salaries are important to them, but the ethics of the practice and what we stand for and our values are just as important. And I think that's getting is, is becoming more increasingly, you know, when we hold interviews with students and um, they ask us more questions about us and our values and our sustainability and our social value and how we support local communities. It is part of um, students' um, questioning uh, interviews now. So it clearly is higher on the agenda. Um, we work with a lot of students and um, to do sort of social value. We work with a lot of schools and, and outreach. And some of our projects tie social value to offering employment opportunities for underrepresented groups in architecture, et cetera. And that's to me where you can make the real difference. We, we also have KPIs on projects about local spend as well. So making sure spend the money, the pound stays within city regions. Um, and, and I think those are where procurement um, can be quite clever to really drive sort of outcomes for both social value. And, and to me, social value and diversity come hand in hand because the social economic background is really important to diversify the profession and allow access to the profession for people that might not go down a traditional pathway. Grace, if you, do you have a, a request, if you like, to the profession around sort of making uh, the profession more equitable when it comes to, you know, geographical diversity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I, I get a lot of um, practices just getting in contact to say, how how do we you know, become more diverse, um, and it and it it is an issue. You know, especially in places where I mean, we've just heard from Elena before about the rich diversity of our universities. You know, we have strong representation of uh, you know students that are often much more enlightened when it comes to you know social ethics, economical ethics, and and, and values, and also have a better sort of representation across the board in terms of the sort of um, architects we need in our practices um, and um, often actually capturing those students and having them stay in the regions where maybe representation is poorer is an issue. Um, I think one solution is you know, for practices to actually get in there alongside, we need to be much more integrated with our um, universities uh, and places of education so that so that, that um, you know, transfer is is more seamless. It's not a, a, a massive step of suddenly seeing a, a practice that's full of white men and thinking, I, I don't want to go and work there. It's actually sort of addressing it early on um, 
yeah i think i think absolutely we need to we need to all work much much harder especially um those practices where we know we have really poor Presentation. If I can ask you, Grace, about, you know, what are the kind of things that you want to see from the profession, from the senior members, from, you know, the, the hub, if you like. We mentioned that, you know, I'm broadcasting here from the HQ, of the, the RIBA here in uh, 66 Portland Place, central London, uh, Fitzrovia, dare say. And, um, you know, what, what do you want to see? What, what needs to happen to get that geographical diversity of the profession sort of more equitable? Yeah, I think... Um, one thing that I've learned is that it's really valuable to listen to all voices, no matter sort of what level of the profession, from, you know, students, part one, two, three, right up to the top senior levels or the key figureheads that are leading our institutions. And we need to hear all those voices. But I think the voices that I'd like to hear more of that have more power and more prominence are those leading figureheads um, to champion and to promote and to welcome everyone that and also to to put that emphasis on that it it is not just about London it is about UK and 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 wider still you know we don't just want to learn from our western culture we need to really embrace so much more so it's about you know um firstly um having that visibility and that communication that is clear and without doubt that everyone is welcome. But it's also about absolutely listening and being transparent about that listening, about acknowledging where our faults are, that we don't all have it right. But hearing that from the top, I think is really important because it then disarms people to be so defensive in their response and it opens up more possibilities. Um, And I think also storytelling more about Um, the success and the brilliant champions that we have across the country. Um, You know, it it needs to be um, so much more prominent in our um, architectural sort of literature and storytelling and value system that we are, that we're feeding. So visibility, really, visibility of that geographical diversity as well. Um, Absolutely. Sue, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think data is key and I think as a profession we struggle to benchmark ourselves because we don't have the right data. Um, we're, we're doing a big project at the moment just looking at our demographic and what data we should capture because actually we don't know how diverse we are and we can't measure progress. But if the RIBA and ARB can support us in data sliced by regions that would be really, really helpful. Um, You know, know, for me, and I know we're going back onto architectural education, but a key one um, is level six apprenticeships. Um, We were part of the Trailblazer group. I'm so disappointed in the north that we don't have a provider for level six. We do in London, but not in the north. I know um, some institutions are about to launch them. But if we are to widen the, the talent pool, we've got to offer pathways into the profession that hit those demographics of people that are not going down that current traditional route. And I've seen firsthand what engineering apprenticeships do and the benefits they bring to us as a practice, the benefits they bring to the profession, the benefits they bring to diversity and social mobility. And somehow the architectural apprenticeships is just not quite delivering yet. And I guess Arban RIBA getting behind those new pathways, especially, you know, a lot of the Russell Group universities are AAA students. They're fantastic students, they're super intelligent, but they're all of the same mould. And actually, I want students that come from a different background with a different voice. Um, 
you know, I want students who had a different starting point and still got their potential to hit. And some of the Russell Group um, or, you know, even our strong schools of architecture don't, don't really open the doors to anybody without high attainment level. And apprenticeships and other pathways are critical to that. So the ARB and the RIBA really supporting new pathways into the profession, I think, is really, really important. I'm sure, Elena, you have something to say about that sort of educational attainment piece. I agree with you. It's apprenticeships. It's for both to transform the industry diversity, but also the educational diversity of how to do things. And it's kind of absolutely critical. But it's, it's also having more voices within the people recruiting in industry to make sure the choices are not of the same mold, but different and engaging with the universities in, in transforming those molds. So I will be delighted to work with people like Grace and Sue to make that change because that is what I'm fighting for. And the other one is opportunities to access university that might, some people I've discovered when I was looking at a wording gap and the attainment gap of our students is confidence. Confidence is one of the biggest uh, elements that stops people to think they can do it. And having universities that help those students to build that confidence is what I have seen transforming their lives in what I do. So for me, I woke up everybody not trying to transform or change kind of lives without thinking about building the future of the confidence in the profession. Sue, that point you were making about, you know, there's no, well, there's hopefully soon a university in the north, I don't know how many, that are, are, are looking at the apprenticeship scheme. That, that's quite a big barrier. And especially when you think about the north-south divide and uh, this perception of um, economic uh, disadvantage more likely in, in the north. Actually, it's not just a perception. I think there's a reality there as well. It's really important, actually, for um a breadth of universities across the country to be offering more apprenticeships, right? Definitely. And I think I think level seven is easy. The funding works. Um, students have done three years of architecture school. There's little risk, but it's not going to be transformational to the profession. But level six, getting 18-year-old um, out of schools and colleges straight into the profession um, is really important. Um, I hope I have got my facts right, and apologies if I haven't, but I don't, um, certainly supporting our um, um, Manchester and Sheffield studios, we, we are struggling with the provider at the moment, albeit we collaborate with all the universities and, and supporting them in sort of getting their pathway moving. There has been a funding gap um, associated with Level 6, and I understand that's been resolved now, and hopefully that will be a spark. Um, there are some universities that offer different collaborative courses, part-time courses, but generally at master's level and nothing at undergraduate level. But I, I you know, I, I like a, Elena's point, actually. So institutions do have a part to play, but actually as a practitioner in terms of how we recruit people is just as important as well. And, and bias comes into it because we are all have favourite schools of architecture and we bring that bias into our recruitment process and um, you've been talking about inclusive recruitment and how we train people to think differently and having diverse opinions as part of that recruitment process is key and understanding starting points you know it's it's not where they've reached it's where they've come from and the journey that has taken them there get you know getting people to understand that are not defaulting to their favorite school of architecture 
um, that only promotes uh, you know, a particular uh, uh, type of student. Um, we need to widen. I'm not saying one, one size fits all, but we've just got to promote as many pathways as possible into the profession. Can, uh, yeah, go, go Eleni. Can, yeah. I, can I say to you, and also the role models that Grace was talking about, that yeah. showcasing the role models to show the kind of those, inspire those stations to say, I can do it, mm -hmm. becomes absolutely as important as the recruitment, because it's all very nice to talk about the kind of the inclusivity and diversity, but if you don't have the role models that you, you say, I will go to this university or this practice, and I will be understood because so important. And actually without diversity, you can't do that. So uh, for me, it's been, I've been recruiting like a mad lady, like, you know, I've got 34 countries. I have got 20% uh, black, Asian, minority ethnics, 40% of females. And that then my students can see role models that they love about and they can see they can do it. Yeah, that's, that's really important. When it comes to role models, it's it's giving those role models the confidence to profile themselves because um, you know I often find there is representation in practices, but because you know many people might have you know it's been very difficult for them to get there, and um, you know people struggle with their own confidence and their own imposter syndrome, and often if you're from a different ethnicity, you know. My, my culture is very submissive and very quiet and I'm quite rare because I'm bullshit and loud and say what I think. But, you know, in order to encourage other people to have the confidence to put themselves up there and be visible at all different levels of practice actually takes someone else to come alongside them as well and, and say, look, I think you need to, um, you know, be a bit more present and let me support you. So it's actually coming alongside people to do that and not just expecting everyone to be like us and to be quite vocal. <laughs> And I say something, Marcia, it's like inspirational mentorship alongside that visibility of all is critical. Yeah, it's quite funny because as a woman in the industry, as a junior architect, I hated to be a role model because I didn't want to be the best woman architect. I wanted to be the best architect. But in a leadership position, that power of being a role model, that power of mentorship, that power of just giving people a platform to have a voice is huge and we don't have enough of it. And, I, and you know, I, I, I think, you know, the RIBA, yeah, I know you have your role model scheme, but just making sure that we really do build on that because as, 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 as Grace says, people sometimes don't have the confidence to speak out or to say, that, you know, what barriers exist in their lives and just, just empowering them to do that, giving them a platform, giving them a safe space to have that conversation is so powerful. Um, we, we've started to develop a thing called Toolbox Talks within BDP. Um, and these are volunteers who say, well, I'd like to talk about neurodiversity, but I haven't got the confidence. So we pair them up with people and we create the right safe space to do it. And the power of having that conversation and people being engaged in that conversation has been huge. And I think, you know, as a leader, for me, it's about giving people that opportunity and supporting them to do that. So, yeah, really well made points there, Eleanor, about role models and Grace about confidence and, and allowing them to do it. Well, thank you very much indeed to architects Grace Choi, Sue Ems and Elena Marco, talking about not only architecture outside London, but what's required of, of those in practice as well. You're listening to Reba Radio. 
Real inclusive, brilliant action.